Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We all know that the Word of God exhorts us and encourages us as well to live the Christian life. And these exhortations are for believers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture gives us commands, Scripture gives us promises, gives us comfort, and gives us examples. But most importantly, in living the Christian life, Scripture gives us Christ. Jesus is our Savior and our King. He is our God, Almighty God, and our friend. And He is our example and also the forerunner of our faith. Our lives are to be patterned after His life. And this does not mean that we are saviors or that we save ourselves. Only Christ can save. Only He is the Savior. Only Christ can accomplish a work in which we are justified and will be sanctified and will be glorified. But we're to follow Christ in His life and follow His example. We are to be faithful as Jesus Christ was faithful. We are to be obedient to the Word of God as Jesus Christ was obedient to the Word of God. We're to be submissive to God as Jesus Christ was submissive to the Father. And Christian life is living for God, living in Christ, by Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. In our morning message, we observe Christ at the cross, and we see there He suffered for us to save us. And we, uh, likewise, are to suffer to be like Him. Our pursuit is not to be like this world, not to be at home in this world, but rather to be like Christ. And the world will not encourage us to be like Christ, nor will our sinful flesh, nor will the devil himself. We will sometimes encounter suffering in living the Christian life. When you talk about suffering in Christians, it usually everyone's ears perk up because we know what it is uh, to suffer as a Christian. Not all suffering will be violent. Not all suffering will be active. And, and yet there's always suffering uh, in this world. But also there will be times of great joy and blessing. Both of those things are descriptive of the Christian life. But as true Christians, we are to set our hearts on following the example of our Savior and King. And you, you get that from passages like this in Hebrews. And I want you, again, as you have turned to Hebrews uh, chapter 13, uh, the, the context of this is, is really the ministry of Jesus Christ. The context of the book of Hebrews is the ministry of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. And he lived a perfect life. Uh, he accomplished a perfect atonement. And he becomes a, a, a perfect example for us. The writer to the Hebrews was writing to people who were suffering. And because of the sufferings that they were encountering, they were sometimes discouraged, sometimes asking the question, is, is this really the right pathway for us to, to walk on? 
are, are, are we doing the right thing? If, we, if we're doing the right thing, why are we encountering these, these difficulties? And, and this was in, in the case of these Hebrew Christians was, was what I call active persecution, uh, meaning uh, they were being driven from their homes. Uh, they were being driven away. Uh, the leaders would come to them and say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no place uh, here. Uh, we have uh, not accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. We have rejected him, and you, uh, you need to go somewhere else. And sometimes the persecution was even more active than that in being driven to somewhere else. And so that, of course, would cause you to say, are we on the right track? Are we, are we believing in, in the right God? Is this the, the sovereign God of this universe? Why are we suffering? Why do we suffer? And should we suffer for our faith? Is this, is this what the Bible speaks about? And Jesus Christ in his crucifixion indicates that following the will of God involves suffering. It certainly did for Christ. And he becomes uh, our example. But um, the background for the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ and from this passage, let me just take you back uh, to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16 is also speaking of, um, of sacrifice. It's actually speaking of the Day of Atonement sacrifice. And in, in chapter 16, verse 23, it talks about a portion of this that relates to Jesus Christ and relates to Hebrews, both of these passages, in that it speaks of going outside the camp to suffer. And it, the reason why Jesus Christ suffered outside the camp and the reason why this Hebrews 13 passage refers to going outside of the camp is because of this Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement sacrifice was a, a full covering sacrifice. If you were living in Israel in the days of Moses and you committed a sin, and uh, I know Jerry Bridges talked about uh, all sin is sin, and there are respectable sins, and those are just as sinful as the others. And all sin is sin before God. There's no question about that. But there were certain sins in the Old Testament that were designated as, as greater sins that required a greater sacrifice. And if you committed a greater sin, you were responsible to bring a, an offering in keeping with your ability to bring an offering, but you were to bring a, an, an offering. So if you stole something from someone, or if you um, um, lied... Uh, in before the leaders regarding to someone else, uh, you committed some kind of what you might consider to be a big sin, you were to bring a sacrifice. And the people were bringing sacrifices all the time. But the Day of Atonement was as if God was saying, okay, the, the high priest is going to represent all of you for all of the sins that you've committed, because we commit sins every day. And so did the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so this is, um, as I have said, I, I like to refer to this as the dustpan uh, sacrifice, because this is where uh, the high priest represented all the little sins, and they were all swept into this dustpan, and then the high priest went in and made sacrifice uh, for the atonement, the day of atonement, the, the, the big sacrifice for all of the people to, to cover them. 
And part of the sacrifice that is mentioned in the verses that I've given to you, verses 23 through 28, let me read this passage, is the sin offering, the sin sacrifice. And it says, Aaron shall come, verse 23, into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for the people and for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their, their offal, all of, the, all of the parts of this um, bull and this goat. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But it goes on in this passage to describe the Day of Atonement, but this is the, the sacrifice of that Day of Atonement. And Jesus Christ is the, the Passover lamb, but he is also the atoning sacrifice. Uh, this atonement that is not just a covering, but it's the final resolution of the sin issue of the people of God. And that is why it says in the passage we looked at this morning that Jesus Christ was taken outside None of this was uh, really uh, observed by Pilate, but the place where he was taken, they took the criminals outside, and so he was taken outside the camp, and he was sacrificed there. He was not burned, but he was crucified, and he suffered and died outside of the camp. Now, when you come to um, Hebrews, it, it makes mention of this, and this is one of the places where I think this proves the inspiration of the Spirit of God because no matter how smart the writer of the Hebrews was, and I'm sure he was very wise, I don't know how you would make this illustration, but he, he makes this illustration uh, for our encouragement because the writer of the Hebrews has says in writing, you are on the right track. Christ is the right Messiah. And he is, God has spoken in his son. And you are seeing this and how God has spoken in his son. And he is better than the angels. Uh, he is a better high priest. Uh, he is a better sacrifice. He is a, 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 has established a better covenant. And all the better than statements that are made of Jesus Christ are to be an encouragement to the Christians to say, though we suffer, we shall suffer for the, the better than Savior. And the one who is the final salvation and the one who, who cleanses us from all of our iniquity and saves us and, and we have a great blessed hope uh, with him. And so the, the whole of Hebrews is an encouragement to keep, keep going, be faithful. You're on the right track. You're in the right place. So that brings us to the end of, of this passage. And because of that statement outside the camp, I want to go to use this as just a, a, a passage that shows how we follow Christ as our example, even in going outside of the camp. And so uh, let me just read verses 12, 13, and 14. 
And then I'll look at the context a little bit, and then we'll come back to these verses. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now, this is the, the, the final exhortation. You know, we are to, like saying, Jesus suffered outside the camp. You go out and suffer with him outside the camp too. You, you are defined by Jesus Christ. And you are saved by Jesus Christ. And you are in Jesus Christ. And you are under the terms of the new covenant in Christ. Go outside the camp as he went outside the camp. Suffer. So these people were going outside of the camp. They had to sometimes leave their homes and, and leave. But, but he puts this into a, a different perspective in terms of, of suffering as Christ suffered. Not as an atoning sacrifice. He's going to talk about the same kind of suffering. It says the Apostle Paul referred to that in, in Romans uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 that we are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Not a dying sacrifice, but we are a, a living sacrifice to God. That's sort of the figure that is given here in this passage. But look back at the in verses, let's see the, the bigger context. Here is, in his final words of encouragement, he gives the encouragement that is uh, so wonderful in verses 5 and 6. But he, he promises the Lord's presence and his protection. He says this, Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. I mean, they've lost everything, so, you know, some of them have lost everything, so I don't know exactly what they have, but they are to be content with what they have, knowing this. This is what they cannot lose. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, man can do a lot of things to me. Man can take all my possessions. Man can kick me out. Man can persecute you, me, man can, can kill me. But man cannot separate me from my God. The Lord says, I will no never leave you, I will no never forsake you. Every part of that statement is emphatic. In fact, there are several characteristics. We've taught this passage, I've taught this passage before. But there, there, it's just an, it can't be stated in a stronger way. Even in this passage, it's as if the writer of the Hebrews stops and says, I want you to hear the voice of God. I want you to hear this in his words. I want him to speak to you, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. No, never, no, never drop you and let go of you. No, never leave you in the midst of trouble. That's his promise. It's, it's the, the voice of God. This is one of those places where if you want to hear the voice of God, read this verse out loud to yourself. You'll hear the voice of God. It's, it's his voice speaking. These are his words. So we boldly say, and again we're quoting scripture here, the Lord is my helper. Though you are driven out, though you're suffering, and though you are going outside the camp, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So then he says in verse 7, follow the example of, the, of your leaders. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. You follow the leader. 
Follow the Christian leader. Follow the one who's leading you in the truth. And know this, verse 8, that the sameness of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Christ that you believed in, that you rejoiced in as your Savior, is the same Christ in the face of suffering. It's the same Christ tomorrow. It's the same Christ forever. He never changes. So don't think that you trusted in one Jesus Christ and all things went well for you. You rejoiced in your salvation. And now in the difficulties of life, there's a different Christ. Where is he? It's the same Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Because of that, do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those beasts which blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. There's that reference to Leviticus. He says we, we, we have something to partake of in Christ that, that those who, who engaged in the shadow and only the shadow have no right to partake of because the fulfillment of that is Christ, the one that we have partaken of. So it's a, a warning to not be taken away by strange doctrine and and what was happening sometimes as the, the Jews went out and Christianity was established, the Judaizers came out and said, you need to be part of, the, you need to be back under the law. You need to be back under uh, the Old Testament law. And you need to be under the Old Covenant when Hebrews makes a grand case for the fact that we are under the New Covenant. The New Covenant which has replaced the Old Covenant. Fulfilled the Old Covenant, not, not destroyed the Old Covenant, fulfilled the Old Covenant. So that's the command that's given here in this passage. And it's in that context that you have these words. Because now it's not talking about Jesus, whose blood was brought into the sanctuary and the high priest for sin and burned outside the camp. And it says... And making the application very clear, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, if I might turn this sentence around a little bit, it's, it's really, it's Jesus suffered. You sort of, you can read it because the purpose of his statement comes first. But it, the, the point is that Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was the sin offering. That's why he is outside the gate. The picture of that is very clear. He is the sin offering, but a sin offering that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the purpose. Now again, when you look at um, John's account of the crucifixion, you see the, the historical look of the cru crucifixion. You don't see the theological truth of the crucifixion crucifixion. That you find in the epistles, and that you find here. Because what he's saying is when you look outside the camp and there's Jesus, when the people walk by, it says, the king, the, the king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they looked and they saw that. They didn't see this. But this is what he was doing outside the camp. What he was doing, that Jesus also, 
that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. When that, that stated first, the purpose of what he's doing is stated first emphatically. He suffered outside the gate. I think to smooth over the sentence, we would say, Jesus suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. But the purpose is, is pushed forward so that you see the purpose first. What Jesus was doing outside the camp was he was securing our salvation, securing the fact that we would be a set-apart people. You see, he could have said in this passage, Jesus also that he might justify. But the emphasis here is not upon justifying. The emphasis here is being set apart. Persecution sets you apart. But it's not persecution that sets you apart. It's Jesus that sets you apart. He's the one who sets us apart from the world. He's the one who sets us apart to be like Him. Christians are odd people living in this world. We should be odd. I say, well, you might look at me and say, well, I'm accomplishing that quite well. I'm a very odd person. Well, no, I'm not talking about that kind of odd. I'm saying we need to be odd because of who we are in Christ. Because we're living in a world of people. The world itself is a people who, who have nothing to do with Christ who are living apart from Christ. And here, as Christians, we come along living for Jesus Christ. That is what sets us apart. You say, no, no, that's not what sets us apart. It's Christ who sets us apart. And the persecution is the effect of being a set-apart people. Every bit of persecution, every bit of suffering that you face for being a Christian is because Christ has set you apart. The world is just responding to what Christ has done in you. And that ought, that ought to affirm your faith. It ought to be an, a, a, sort of a, a negative encouragement to you. Because none of us like to face, to face opposition or hardship or difficulty or suffering or persecution or whatever you want for the cause of Christ. But here he's saying it's, 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 it's not the those who persecute you that set you apart, it's Jesus Christ suffered outside the camp to set us apart. To set us apart from this world. To set us apart to be like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world, what did they do with him? They crucified him. They crucified Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ would be the best king you could ever have. He's the king who provides for the people, not a king who takes the resources from the people. He's a, a God who provides. He can feed the people. He can heal the people. He can fight for the people. He can do everything that the people need. You can't have a better king than Jesus Christ. But Jesus comes. And he is holy. And he is righteous. And he spoke about holiness and righteousness in the face of a sinful and rebellious people. And they said, we don't want you. And so they rejected him. And they crucified him. And so we cannot be Christians living in this world and expect to be treated differently. We're a set-apart people. And it is Christ who sanctifies us. It's the one who cuts us apart. He sets us apart. It's a separation of that word that is really what it means. We're separated from something and to something. From this world, from sin and death, to Jesus Christ, to life and, and to eternity forever with him. But that's what Jesus Christ was doing, he, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. 
And it's as if the writer of the Hebrews is saying to people, don't you see, don't you get it? Don't you see that if you come to Christ and you're living in this world, you will face persecution? Don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised at the, at the fiery trial that, that you are encountering. We say, well, it's always going to be somewhat, there's a surprise aspect of any kind of persecution that comes our way. At the same time, we are a set-apart people. I think Christians sometimes try to be like the world instead of trying to be like Jesus Christ. And they try to make peace with the world, sort of. We want the world to like us and us to like the world, and we want to get along and be... But, but what Christ has done is he's really set us apart to be like Jesus Christ. And the more you follow Jesus Christ, the more difficult it will be. Because Christ is setting you apart to be like he is. So it's Christ who suffered and died to set you apart. And one wonders why Jesus Christ didn't look down at the cross and say, I'm doing all of this to set you apart. I'm doing all this to save you and to set you apart and to, and to, and to make you the, the children of the kingdom of God. I'm the king. I'm suffering and dying here because before I rule in all my power and authority, I'm going to suffer and die in all of this humiliation in order that you may be saved and in order that you may be set apart to me. If I don't do this, there will be a kingdom with no people in it. But because I'm coming to die and set apart a people unto myself, that's what's taking place here. So in John's gospel, you see Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, and he says a few things. He's going to say a few things more, and we're going to observe the historical event and the things he actually said from the cross, some of them. But it's just so wonderful to see the, the truth as it's fully developed and, and taught in, uh, by, the, um, by the apostles under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and, and emphasizing this truth. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, now here's where we begin to talk about us. Therefore, Let us go out, go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now that's, first he died to sanctify, now we're living our lives. What do we do in living our lives? Well, we go out to Christ. And the imagery, don't, don't get so captivated in the illustration that you don't see the truth of what it's saying. Is what, First it's talking what Christ has done, and now we go out to him. One of the reasons why he wrote this epistle is because he was hearing from the Hebrew Christians that they were confused and struggling about why they're suffering and why they're persecuted. He says, not only did Christ, he's the one who set you apart, and is setting you apart. Therefore, your responsibility is to go out to him. Don't be ashamed of him. Go out to him. When Jesus Christ was crucified, it said the, woman, the women stood at a distance and they beheld what was taking place. And I'm sure some of the apostles may have stood at a distance to behold the things taking place there as well. I, I don't really know, but Jesus Christ was there alone. But he's not alone now because we go out to him. 
And we go out to him, and to go out to him as one who is being crucified is not, in, in Roman days, is not necessarily the one you want to be associated with. You associate, as Peter understood, and as John understood as well, you associate with him, you may be the next one on the cross. But it says you go out to him. And you go out to him and say, he's my savior. He, he, he is the son of God. He is the king. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He is the king of the whole world. And we go out to him. It's as if he's saying to the Hebrew Christians and saying to us, don't, don't, don't be a fearful, don't be afraid in the, in the face of difficulties, in the face of affliction, in the face of, of persecution. Go outside the camp. It's almost like saying embrace the idea of suffering. He could have put all this in different words, but he puts it in this, this illustrative form so that we will be you know, compelled to see that our point is to, to, to go to Christ, the one who sets us apart. Don't try to make yourself like the world. Go to Christ who sets you apart. You'll be even a greater distance from the world, not a lesser distance from the world. But there's something else to bear in mind, and this is sort of what brings it all together. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now, the city theme is also here in the book of, of Hebrews. And uh, let me look back at Hebrews chapter 11. And it mentions Abraham. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 it says, it talks about the city. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterwards receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He went into the land, but he didn't go into the land to live in the land. He went into the land looking for the city of God. Abraham didn't possess anything but the graveyard. And he lived his life. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they only possessed the graveyard. That's all they possessed of the land. They were to walk on the land. They were to, with the promise of what God was going to do. But Abraham was in the land, and he was not looking for a city in which he was going to dwell in the land, a city that he was going to claim for himself. He was looking for the city that God was going to bring, what God was going to provide. He's looking for the city of God. Then look at Hebrews chapter 12. In verses uh, 18 through 24, here we have the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and blackness of darkness of tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the word, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. 
This is the, the mountain where God said, you know, I'm going to appear to you, Moses, and, and this is the mountain. And the mountain was trembling. And there was the, the, the glory of God upon the mountain and the fire and the smoke. And, and anything that touched the mountain would die. So the people were standing back and they couldn't endure hearing from God. And Moses was to go up the mountain. This is Mount Sinai. This is the law, the law that was given. He's telling them, you you're not going to that, that mountain. That's not where you're, you're going to. That's not where you are to find your city. Verse 22 continues and says this, But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. This is looking for the, the city of God. Augustine wrote about the city of God. And he was very much concerned when Christianity became accepted religion, that Christianity became corrupted. And he was arguing for that, that we need to be a separate people. I think uh, his mistake was saying the city of God is here. We need to be a city unto to God. But the city of God is the, the new Jerusalem. And the Bible speaks of this new Jerusalem as that which comes down, and which comes with Christ himself. But this, this new Jerusalem is the city of God. We're looking for the city of God. We're not looking for a city here. Abraham was not looking for a city here. We, we are not looking for Mount Sinai or we're looking for this Mount Zion. We're looking for the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, 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 this whole wonderful city of God that's coming. So that's why he says in this way, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. So the writer of Hebrews is saying this city is still to come. He wasn't talking about coming in the day of Augustine. He was talking about the city that is still to come with the coming of Christ. So this is saying, you know, we, this Jesus being outside the camp is a picture not only of, of what Jesus did for us in his, his atoning work, but it's also a picture of how we go out to him. But we go out to him in, in the sense of we we associate ourselves with Him, we are sanctified unto Him, and we go out to Him in this world, but we're not looking for this city in this world. We're not looking for peace and prosperity here upon the earth now, but we're looking for what comes with, with Christ in the fullness of all the promises and the blessings. We're looking for the city of God. We're still looking for the city of God. That's why Christianity always has this forward look. It's always looking by faith to what is to come by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you say, well, okay, how, how do we live? How, how, this, this is great. It says we are to go out to Christ, but that's a figurative expression because Christ is no longer outside the gate hanging on the cross. He has died, he was buried, he's raised, he's seated as king. How do we go to Christ outside the camp? Well, we understand it means to associate with him in his crucifixion at the cross. We're never to be ashamed of the cross of Christ. We're to, to always associate with Christ, which 
he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. We're always going to be at not home here in this world. But we're looking for the city that is to come. So be faithful. So we say, okay, does that mean we just live our lives standing watching for the city? And the answer is, well, no, that's not what he says in the look of the passage. Because he's going to continue to speak in sacrificial terms. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, verse 15, again, therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we're going out, and the picture is the sacrifice that is without. Now we are the living sacrifice, so how do we, how do we live? Well, we live by giving thanks to God. Now, once again, this is not just saying, oh, go home and have a nice prayer time this evening and give thanks to God, but this is a persecuted, driven people from their homes giving thanks to God. So this is very practical. Now we're talking in terms that is very clear to understand. The saying, whatever situation that you're in, you are to be thankful to God. Because we're not here. This is not it. This is not the, the lasting situation that you're in. This is not the fulfillment of all of God's promises, what is happening to you now. We have a taste of the fulfillment of God's promises. That's amazing because just the taste is so wonderful. But the reality is what Jesus Christ will do when, when He comes. And when that happens, our sin nature is removed. We shall be glorified. We shall be like Christ. I can't even begin to think about what that's going to be like. But that's what we're looking for, and we give thanks. So in the face of persecution, we say, I'm thankful. Thankful that, that Jesus Christ is mine. Thankful that I'm looking for the city that is to come. Thankful that this is not the end. If some of the martyrs were to testify that this life was the sum and substance of everything, they would say, it's not worth it because I live for Christ, and I came to the end of my life, and they burned me at the stake. But when you get to heaven, you're going to meet all of those martyrs, and you and you meet them, they're going to give testimony, and they're going to say, Jesus Christ was with me through the whole of that. He was faithful to me. And the best is the city of God, we're still looking for that. And what the, the, the people who burned these martyrs at the stake sought to separate them from God, they tried to burn them as they were making a burning sacrifice as well. They were to burn the heretics, burn them to hell. But they can't burn them to hell. They can only burn them as a witness of Jesus Christ, looking for the city that is to come, that no one can separate them from God. And he never drops them, he never leaves them in their affliction, even burning at the stake looking for that city that is to come. He goes on to say, Do not forget to do good and share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So we have the sacrifice of praise of God, and now the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So he talks about, he doesn't use the word sacrifice, but he talks about the pathway of obedience to those who have gone before us and those who are leaders and those who have care of your soul, who must give an account. Let them do so with joy, not with grief. And then he says, pray for us. And then he has this benediction, which is a wonderful. Let me just end with this statement of benediction. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, 
that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Here's our Lord Jesus Christ brought up from the dead by the Father through the blood of the everlasting covenant to make you complete in every good work. May he do this. So he comes to the end and he prays for them. They say, may God make you complete. Complete how? Complete in Christ. The one that God has raised from the dead, the resurrection testifies to the truthfulness of who Christ is. And he is resurrected from the dead and he lives forever and he lives for us. He accomplished that work for us and because he lives, we live. And it is all through the Lord Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. So we're equipped by his working in us, that we might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at this life and you say, well, this life is not about me, is it? I say, no, it's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about our association with Christ. It's about being saved by Jesus Christ, by faith and trust in him. It's by living, trusting, and looking for him. So the being outside the camp is an interesting theme you see in the in the description, uh, descriptive aspect of Christ's death in, in John chapter 19. But there's wonderful truth that's associated with that, truth that even applies to us going outside the camp. You are being sanctified to be like Christ. Willingly go outside the camp of Him. Go to be like Christ. Don't find your home in this world. You're seeking a city that is to come. And our hope and trust is fixed upon Christ Himself. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we look at this great statement of all that you're accomplishing in and through our lives. We're thankful that you, through Jesus Christ, are sanctifying us, that you're setting us apart. We confess that sometimes we cling to this world, but your purpose is to set us apart from this world and to set us apart to be like Christ. And we're thankful that you work in us and through us to be like Christ. I'm thankful that you equip us, and we're thankful that we're in your hands. So we pray that you would be an encouragement to each one of us and the difficulties of life that we face, and we think of all the people that we pray for regularly here from the pulpit, and we pray for these ones who, are, who suffer, suffer afflictions, physical afflictions, any kind of affliction. But we're thankful, Father, that you are setting us apart in all the consequences and all the, the kinds of difficulties that we face in life to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Help us to live in expectation of that city that is to come. Help us to be looking for you. So we thank you for all that you're accomplishing in our lives. We're thankful for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We say glory be to God for all. Glory be to you, Father, for all that you've done for us in Christ. We pray that you will continue until we stand in your presence, sanctified, glorified in Christ. So may your blessings be upon us, and may you encourage our hearts as we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.